Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership management and wondering just how much of an adult I actually am. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. Never run over a mailbox you aren't prepared to repair. <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking with Anthony Jules, co-founder and COO at Robust.ai. Hi, thanks for being on the show. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kendall. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're excited you're here. And let's uh, jump right in, Anthony. Tell us about your path to leadership and management and where you are today. Okay. So um, I guess it, it really started when I left college. You know, my, my history is I, I studied robotics and AI at um, MIT 20 some years ago. And, um, you know, I've been, always been fairly entrepreneurial. But I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, and when you come to the U.S. as a foreign student, you you can only work on campus. So after about five years of being in school, I decided I was tired of not running a business. I'd always, you know, sold T-shirts, sold calculators, done stuff. So I ended up um, uh, doing a startup with some friends. I got a leave of absence from the graduate program at MIT, and. Um, said, oh, I'll be back in two years. And that has never happened. <laughs> you so, didn't go back? <laughs> no, I didn't. So, you know, and I ended up uh, starting this business called Sapient Corporation with, um, you know, with some friends where, you know, my, uh, it was an incredible ride because I, you know, left graduate school and went from being, you know, one of, you know, fewer than 10 people um, to spending 10 years building a business that was almost 4,000 people by the uh -huh. time we left, wow. that we'd taken That's public, huge. that we yeah we were in you know three countries and six offices by the time we left. So it was it was super fun. It was it was interesting really to be a part of that ride and see how businesses change what they are over time. And we can definitely talk more about that later. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and then from then. Um, I've just gone on to do a bunch of different things. I kind of have this rule, which is every seven to 10 years, look at what you're doing, blow it up and start and learn something new and do something different. <laughs> so I went from that to um, the video game industry and worked as a programmer and then a manager at Activision for a bunch of years and then yeah. blew everything up again and uh, became skilled as a woodworker and um cabinet maker and digital fabricator it's a little bit um, of a change wow yeah, and then blew that up and then went back to robotics and uh, started a robotics company that was acquired by google spent four years there and now i'm founder of another robotics company so <laughs> wow, that, that's, that's that's my path that's, that's your that's nine years serious, aren't up on that <laughs> yeah well and that's a serious uh that's a serious journey there anthony so can, oh, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about the I mean, go back and talk a little bit about the growth of Sapient. And and you said it was over 3,000, 4,000 people by the time you were done? It was about, um, you know, it was about, um, it was a, you know, I think it was right around 3,600 people when I left. But, um, you know, one of the really interesting things that happens is um, companies change their character um, with different scales. Oh, you know, yeah. And the way that I would describe it is when we were little, um, you know, so less than 20 people, um, the modes of communication that work, you know, essentially yelling at each other across a room um, and relying on person-to-person -person communication and in-person communication works extremely well 
And in fact, being too formal is deleterious. Um, and then right at about 25-ish, that started to break down. And, and we had to get a little more structured in what we were doing. Um, you know, and it, it changes the organization, but to keep things feeling coherent, you, we ended up having to put some of that stuff in place. And then I, I feel like, you know, the next, the next threshold was somewhere around 80 people. Um, and I think it's different for different people, but there's this moment when you don't personally know everyone in the company. <laughs> and, and that's like the next breaking point. Um, yeah, when, again, when somebody's wanna, yeah. hired and then fired and you never met them. <laughs> yeah. Or you come back from vacation and there's multiple email streams from people who you don't know who they are. Uh-huh. And you're like, I don't really understand what they're on about here. I, you know, I have no context for what this person is saying. Yeah. yeah, I am super familiar with that feeling for sure. And and the feeling of, you know, you've been there since the beginning. Like I'm talking about my experience with Splunk being there from uh, employee number 60 and then people knowing you because you've been there a long time and you not knowing them. That's pretty yes. weird too. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh-huh. I mean, and that was one of the things that, um, yeah, I definitely had that experience. Uh, you know, what I call it kind of the asymmetrical familiarity. Yeah. Right. Where it's just like. Yeah, you know, you, you have these people who are like, hey, Anthony, great work that you did on such and such project. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> who you're the like, hell are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and yeah. how how fast, I mean, talk a little bit about just some of the growth there. Like, did it take four years to get to 50 people and then another four years um, to get to, you know, 2,000? Or or how did that, like, what was the growth trajectory um, there? It was, it was explosive. Um, 25 was the first year year and you know one year that's impressive yeah that that was impressive but that still felt really tight-knit because we were working you know like like many startups we were working insane hours and and an insane level of focus so you got to know people really well really quickly Mm -hmm. yeah um but just to give you an impression uh, some idea of scale um you know there was a point at which in the growth of the company um, we realized we needed to hire, um, I, I can't give exact numbers, but our hiring goal for uh, fresh out graduates from college was um, more than 500 people one year. Wow. Um, yeah. And the previous year it had been a lot, but it had been over 100, but not quite 200. And just as you model your business, you're like, wow, given our growth, given the balance of junior and senior people on teams and the, the um, essentially pipeline we want to build for, for training people so that we have, you know, X percentage of leaders three years from now, you know, holy crap, we have to hire, you know, hundreds of, of bachelor degree students this year. Yeah. That How sounds like you had a lot longer perspective than a lot of companies do nowadays, right? Like I can't think of any company that's planning to have that kind of pipeline for their leadership. And I, I think that probably explains a lot about why that company was successful. Um, I think it does too. The good, the good news is we were in a business that has that type of, we were in a business where that works. Mm-hmm. You know, so fundamentally our business was, um, a mixture of consulting and delivering technology, but what we did roughly scaled with number of people. So as we as we modeled our business, 
it was pretty clear to us what the headcount was. Mm -hmm. So even if we said, okay, we're going to be 20% or 30% more efficient next year, we still have a really clear indication on, you know, revenue multiplied by some number, multiplied by how much more efficient you're going to get. And and we know what the headcount number looks like. Mm -hmm. And then once you know what the headcount number looks like, you're like, you can't really run a team without, uh, you know, this balance of leadership that we modeled. It's like, okay, we have to figure out how to build that. Um, yeah, grow those in-house. That was, yep. Yeah, yeah. And what we did was was very specific. We had a very specific methodology around how we delivered products. So we couldn't hire leaders outside. Um, yeah. And, ah. and, and that was part of how we focused on it. We have to build leaders in-house. And to do that, you have to, you know, invest and, and kind of look forward a bit. Oh, it's, uh, I love to hear about that level of intention. It's, it's very, it's refreshing. Um, and I wanted to go back to something that you talked about briefly uh, and, and we're still talking about scale and so forth, but uh, you said you had uh, at certain breaking points put in to place more process around communication. Can you say a bit more about what those kinds of things specifically are? It'll sound really mundane now because <laughs> we, we, we actually have tools that make a lot of this stuff automatic. There was no Slack um, now or then rather. There was no, yeah, no, so this was 20 years ago. Um, you know, email was novel. I still remember when we, you know, this was four years into the existence of the company. We fundamentally retooled because of, um, you know, me and one of the CEOs sat down and we were playing with gopher and mosaic <laughs> and we both wow. had this light bulb going okay this is going to change everything <laughs> how do we think it's going to change everything um so you know so some of the things that you know will seem obvious but you know right around 20 people is when we started things like um bi-weekly all hands where we literally just got in a room um did a walkthrough of what happened in the last two weeks and did um and just answered questions. Any question was was reasonable, and it's just how do we all get on the same page and maintain context? Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit bigger than that, we started things that were even more formal, like the weekly or biweekly newsletter, so that people who aren't around or missed the meeting or were at a client can still f- find out what happened because the in-person meeting wasn't enough. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we probably when we were in the hundreds um, did something that didn't even have a name at that time, but it, it's now um, become gone, you know, now goes by the name of an intranet. You know, we're like, let's use these crazy browser things and some servers here and we can write some HTML and all these resources are available to everyone. You know, we just made stuff up and, and you know, it didn't even have a name back then. We used to call it something like our uh, knowledge graph, which means a completely different thing now. But um <laughs> So it was essentially an internet. That is awesome. And I can imagine that there are people working in the world today who have never experienced the wonder of an internet. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> everything is yeah. all outsourced now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, along the way here, uh, what has been the one of the, the harder, more embarrassing lessons you've had to learn to get to where you are now? Um, so I'll do a personal one, actually. I mean, I, I think the thing, something I discovered about my leadership style is, um, I'm really good at seeing what people are good at and I'm not as good as seeing what they're weak at. I can relate to that. And, um, and one of the things that, and, and, you know, it was, it was 360 feedback that let me see this. 
Um, you know, my, my, you know, don't like to admit that, but it's true. Um, but, uh, you know, so what I realized, what, what became clear is um, I would put people in positions where, yeah, they could play to their strengths, but they didn't always have the support that they needed. And um, I've done a lot to recognize that I do that and explicitly think, what am I doing to make sure this person has the support that they need? And some of it is brain dead simple that I just learned from looking at other mentors. Um, you know, I, I worked with a great guy who just did this thing. Every single time he talked to someone about what they were going to do next, he would slow everything down, intently listen and say, how comfortable are you with that? And can you walk me through what parts of it you're comfortable with and what parts of it you aren't comfortable with? Huh. Mm -hmm. And then he would create some space. And it's a simple tool, which, you know, for someone like me helps a lot. Mm -hmm. But um, I'd say one of the, all of my embarrassments, you know, which mostly looked like um, either projects uh, being delivered late or projects uh, being delivered on time, but with, but because we added a bunch of resources, you know, mm -hmm. two months before the, the due date, um, they were all because of um, my, my overestimating people's strengths and underestimating their, their struggles. Oh, I see. And that, that also can lead to, in, a, in addition to not knowing that a project is going to fail or whatever, can also lead to that person never growing in any way, right? Never Agreed. having, if, if they're able to avoid the things that they're not good at uh, completely such that you don't, you know, end up, uh, you know, looking bad in front of your management, they still may not mm -hmm. uh, get the kind of experiences that they need to grow. So yeah, it's a, that's a big one to learn and it's a good one to learn early. Well, I'm curious, like the, so, so the, the big negative outcome of your, I mean, it's almost like overconfidence in people, uh, I mean, is it can, yep. yeah, you can say it that way. Like that, the, the problem with that was that sometimes you gave them too much and, and didn't know that they didn't have the tools that they needed to succeed with it. Um, were there other problematic behaviors that came from that? I mean, so, I mean, I, I asked this because I know that I think way too highly of people almost always, which, you know, people like, because, I have tremendous confidence in them. But I love I, it, Kendall. I totally do. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I, I also yeah. think like, yeah, I mean, hearing from you that this is what the failure mode is of that, I, I, I really want to understand that deeply so that I can learn from your mistakes instead of make them myself. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, um, I'll describe, I think there's the failure mode and I also think there's the, what the experience looks like. So, um, so, Tell me if any of this sounds familiar, Kendall. Which, yeah. um, you know, you in the early parts of projects or relationships, um, things are extremely positive because you're showing a lot of faith in in people, and people respond positively to that. Um, however, sure. if if you know, as time goes on, um, and and maybe the person begins to struggle, then they're then your, you know, their their comfort starts going down, and um, either they can they can fail outright because you know you you delegated something, you thought that they completely had it, you know, you gave them the brief, you're like, okay, you're good to go, 
and you know the next thing that you hear is the failure report um, or if you're checking in along the way the first the first kind of uh, thing that you detect is that the tone of the conversation changes you know they're just not as confident as they were they just yeah. can't answer questions as clearly as they did right. and now for me that that that's that's a signal it's information um, you know where it, it's my cue to start saying things like, okay, um, what of this are you struggling with and what of this is going well? Are there right. ways that you need more support? And then just starting to dig through those questions because I know really clearly that this is, you know, um, you know, this is the shadow side to my to my um, great support of people. And I, and I just need to, to use my tools to compensate for it. Yeah, sure. No, well, this is this is super helpful, and it's it's uh, not all that common that we have somebody who's uh, on this podcast speaking directly to me. But I appreciate it uh, because <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I need it. Well, and then I also want to know. I mean, you're at this startup that that does you know just crazy leaps and bounds and grows like crazy, and you even go public and all of this. Uh, and then you know you've had a long career since then. Did, were you the kind of person that finished that and was like, I want to go do this again. I want to go do this again. This is, this is a highly addictive and it was hard as can be, but I, I want to be a part of it again. Or, or were you kind of like, man, I really just want a calm thing for a while. And, you know, how did the other places you've um, been since, you know, kind of compare? It's interesting where um, my motivation isn't either of those. Um, it's, so my motivation is really about the fact that I build things, um, I, I, since I, you know, I've always built things. Um, you know, when I was young, and it was everything from, um, you know, things out of wood or plasticine or science experiments. Um, but as soon as I came into the tools that I love the most, it's really clear to me that I, I build machines, and they can be in software, they can be in hardware, or they can be in organizations. Um, and that's the thing that I love. Um, so sure. after Sapient, you know, I my goal for the year after Sapient, I believe, was snowboard in Tahoe and get 80 days in the snow. <laughs> um, super goal directed, but completely different goal. Um, and then it wasn't a year after that I was at at Activision, and and you know, and my goal there was um, build AI for um, for video games. Um, you know, and it was really about bringing some new thing into existence. And sometimes it's, it, it's yeah, as I said, sometimes it's software, sometimes it's hardware, or sometimes it, it's a business. Wow. So yeah. what, and, That's fascinating. what was the world like at Activision? Can you talk a little bit about how, uh, what sort of role you had there? What sort of leadership you, mm -hmm. you grew into so, there? Um, yeah, so I was at a small studio in the, in the uh, Northern California that was part of Activision. You know, so I would go down to Southern California occasionally, but mostly it was about running our studio here. And um, I, I started off as an AI programmer, and then the the um, head of the studio, who was, was a good friend, but um, you know my my boss's boss at that point, um, invited me into the office and said, "Hey, you have more management experience than most of the people running the studio." So I'd like to talk to you about a different role, <laughs> and then wow. I ended up, um, I ended up, uh, you know, working with him and and leading games for six years, um, 
And, I, and if you've talked to anyone in that industry, you'll know it's by far the longest hours mm-hmm. uh, um, I've ever seen a team work. Everyone in that industry is in it because they love games. And mm-hmm. they know there's a line of people who love games going out the door who don't have their job. Yeah, um, that's super easy you know, to exploit, right? It is. And, it's, uh, and, um, and as gamers, part of the culture is um, you know what the game is, so you play it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's it's the only place i've i've ever done a crunch where um you know for over six months there was one point on one game where we were where i would leave the office you know midnight one or two and then be back in the office at eight or nine Ugh, yeah. and just did that for six months how is that sustainable and the crazy at all part was, sorry finish your thought it's it, not. It, it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah but even six months but that's, that's right, incredible like six months Oh, it's yeah. so I mean, rough. but part of it is your your um, the feedback loop in building games is really tight. You know, you you change some code, you build a new model, you do a new thing, and it's in the game and it's moving in minutes. Yeah, um, and that is just plain fun. Um, so building games is fun. You're working with you know, I, I I loved the team I was with. So even though we look back at that and think, okay, that was not a crunch we will ever choose to repeat. Um, we don't have a lot of negative around it. You know, the negative is, okay, that's unsustainable and that was, you know, a ridiculous situation. That being said, happy with who I did it with and happy with what we produced. Yeah, yeah I think both of those so. things can be true, you know? Well, and it's it doesn't make those, it great, but... Yeah, you look back at a lo- on it a little bit like you're in the trenches with those people uh, solving something that was really fun and exciting, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you create shared memories around it. Sure. Yeah, which, yeah which at the end of the day is a big part of why all of us do the stuff we do. Yeah. Well, and so you've had all these different roles at all these different companies, you know, from, from CTO to VP to, you know, uh, founder, et cetera. You've even been an investor. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your LinkedIn so that I can list these things in a You're semi, cheating. I mean, I don't want to brag, but I, yeah, I use outside resources. Um, what, what's been your favorite role along the way, Anthony? And, you know, if I guess, um, well, first answer that. And then I have a follow-up question to that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because, um, I don't know if I've had a favorite role and let me, let me say why, because, um, you know, again, I realized I, what I love is building things. So it's been about what's been my favorite thing to build. You know, I'll tell you right now, I'm having an incredible time with the company I'm building. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, people ask, you know, people have asked me for this advice and I'm, I give it pretty consistently, which is you're making a job choice or a career change or anything like that. And I say, Hey, it really comes down to a couple of factors and a couple of factors only. Is it work that you're going to enjoy? Is it a group of people you trust and you want to spend a lot of time with who you think will like help you grow and make you smile? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and are they paying you enough? You know, if those things are true, which they often are often all three of those things are not true, but if those things are true, um that's a good opportunity. Um, and if you have two opportunities for which those things are true, figure out the one for which you cannot have the the, the gains the highest on each of those things. Right. Um, because everything, you know, we, we've we've all been there. Um, 
the exact focus of the company changes, sure. the exact work changes, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's who you're doing it with. Well, so. I feel like it's a tremendous, like I would consider myself tremendously privileged if I got to choose companies where those three things were true, you know, like uh, I feel like it's really rare that in an interview process or, or, you know, in looking for my next thing, I can even vet those things. You know, I might be able to vet one or two of the three, but, but to know all three going in, you know, I'd have to be pretty uniquely connected to the place before I even started there. I feel like. Yeah. And I think that's why people enjoy going to work at startups uh, because you have a lot more of an ability to tell uh, mm-hmm. whether that's going to work turn it for into you. That. Yeah. Yeah, um yeah. definitely. And then this also kind of goes back to uh what Anthony was talking about earlier like as companies grow their entire character changes and you have a lot less of an ability to see uh what the entire character of the company is when it's bigger. So yeah, uh you're not going to know that going into a much bigger company. You might be able to find that out going into a department. Yeah. And that may mm-hmm. be the only scale that matters really to you depending on the job. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then I think you answered my follow-up question, which you know I was going to ask, what what role would you tell people to be in? But it sounds like you, you're not going to suggest a specific role. You're going to suggest you know the the three things you just mentioned. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because I think you know the the same role on the surface, you can have a drastically different experience if any of those those fundamentals are different. Sure, and and even yeah. you know companies. It, it, you can have the same title across four different companies and have a vastly different job every time. Uh, exactly. The people you're surrounded by. Yeah. I buy that. Okay. Well talk about a leadership issue you're dealing with right now. Is there something that's, uh, that's challenge? There's, there's a part of me that thinks given the, the history that you have, you've seen everything. And so you're not really struggling with anything. <laughs> so like, like, tell, you know, what's a problem you're dealing with right now. And, and, uh, I, I want to believe that there's things that still stymie you. Okay. So it's interesting. I, I, I think, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to play into your compliment. Thank you very much. Ken. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> as long as it sets think, up a good answer, you know, I'm happy. Yeah. So things like, um, you know, um, it, it, things like, you know, managing people, I don't sweat, you know, things like mm-hmm. um, setting up an organization, what should the org structure look like? I don't sweat. What should people's titles be? How are we like, you know, I've seen enough of that stuff that there's just enough patterns to, you know, that I've now assimilated that I, I, I'm really good at saying, for what we're seeing right now, here's a great pattern and here's how we tweak it for us exactly at this moment. So the things that, that present themselves day to day, um, each item is not um, particularly uh, surprising or difficult. Um, What I find my main struggle to be, and it's been consistent for quite a while um, is actually has more to do around self-management um you know the struggle that never seems to go away is trying to find the right balance between um a number of competing things where do i spend my time um what's the balance between how much time i you know you know, the computer you know, machine learning people would say, what's the balance between exploration and exploitation? Like what's the balance between learning um, and doing using resources to learn and figure out what exactly using resources to learn versus using resources to do. 
um, and of all of the demands coming at me every day, um, how do I triage it down to what's essential, where I should focus my, you know, 10 hours a day um, of active time? And then, you know, you have all the time that your brain's doing other stuff. Um, and how do you triage it down to being most effective at that time? And that's kind of the the struggle that I don't think ever goes away. So um, wait, I, I just want to clarify because I think my internet's having a problem. You're saying that's a struggle that goes away, right? That you get good at this and you do. <laughs> no, I'm saying, oh no, no. Kendall, <laughs> you sweet stubborn child. <laughs> no, I want I want that to get easier. That's so discouraging. Uh, <laughs> I'd say I'd say it gets easier, but we're human. So yeah. what we do is we just put more on the plate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you, you know, there's parts of it you get better at. There's parts of it you get more efficient at. And then your response to that is, oh, of course I can now do that interview this afternoon that I didn't think I had space for. I don't know, speak for yourself. <laughs> I guard my time super jealously. <laughs> oh, man. that's But that's fast. I mean, I, I feel like... Um, you know, what, what, what I thought would happen in my life is that I would get more comfortable with things and therefore the stress levels would reduce, but it doesn't seem to matter how comfortable I am with things. My body seems to be, or my brain seems to be perfectly willing to fill up all of that additional space with any stress that, you know, I mean, I, right before this call, uh, <laughs> I thought I tackled one of the three big things I need to tackle this week. And now I'm having a massive plumbing issue and somebody has to come dig up my basement tomorrow. So, you know, now I have got another <laughs> stress added to uh, mm -hmm. where I had just knocked one out. But um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say, I feel like the stress level goes down, but there's kind of this uh, homeostasis sure. where, you know, some amount, you, you always have some amount of stress, yeah. you know, unless you're dead, you know, you, you know, we are, yeah. we're in dynamic equilibrium. Yep. You know, we have, we have uh, stimuli coming in, we act. Um, and yeah, the, the struggle associated with it, I think goes down, but only to the level of activation that you kind of need to be the person that you are. You know, we all kind of have slightly different levels around that, but I, you know, it, it never gets to like, the zen every day moment uh, oh, it you know, certainly doesn't if you experience. change your gig every you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you'd have just completely. retired after but, that first thing you <laughs> would have been, a, been a zen <laughs> oh, now. Oh, okay I, I hear you let me let me uh so I, I didn't explain it this way but my the, the reason i changed gigs is you know i've tried to retire three times mm. and what i've realized retirement looks like for me is learning something new and then when you learn something new you're like oh time to go out and use that Mm -hmm. um, so it just, you know, no matter what you call it, um, you know, well, uh, certainly for me, um, it, it's about, it, it's just about building stuff and bringing new things into the world. And, mm -hmm. and if I'm not doing that, um, I'm pretty sure I would experience more negative than if I am doing it. And if you're um, going to do it anyway, you might as well make money doing it. Yeah, and my well, you know, make money and do it with a bunch of great people. You know, that's been my thing, which is doing it, doing it for free, or you know, doesn't isn't any fun. Doing it by yourself isn't any fun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So might as well build something, get paid for it, and do it with a great group of people. Yeah, the the great yeah. group of people is a is a really big deal and it's and super really key. unusual. Yeah. yeah, and when you find it, it it is fun. Like it's just yeah. so much more. Even even when they're making you crazy. Uh, 
you know, like it, at least it's someone you thoroughly enjoy making you crazy rather than someone that, that's always rubbing you wrong. Well, but, speaking yeah. of uh, things that make some people feel crazy, uh, what is your relationship with authority? Um, how do you feel about having authority over people? And how do you feel about others having authority over you? Um, I, that's a great question. Well, that is what um, this podcast I, I is about. A, I know. <laughs> I have a really weird um, relationship with authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to it um, in, in, in most cases. Um, and I, I, I don't know how, how universal this is, but if anyone tells me I have to do something, I'm much more resistant to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that being said... Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I, you know, how I think about um, how I want people to experience me as a leader, and how I like to experience leaders. So uh, I'll also say I've been I've been pretty consistent in working with people, um, you know, working for people who I respect a lot and who I know respect me and understand my strengths um, so that the relationship feels very um, open and comfortable. Um, and com- not comfortable in that, you know, we're, we're not holding each other to excellence, comfortable in that we're holding each other to be excellent and we're really transparent about it. Mm-hmm. Where you know, kind of what I what I want in you know my boss is someone who says who with who I can have conversations like, hey, this is what I'm doing well. These are the things I'm kind of lost on, but here's the resources I want to use, and here are the things I want to learn. Now let's make sure that like that's what we're optimizing for. And do you see any problems with that? And just being really transparent about that conversation has been. Um, important for me it's kind of a um yeah it's kind of non-negotiable that's that's just you know how how i work at this point yeah and Um, it seems connected to the way that you want to we were talking about earlier where you're saying um you need to question your your reports the people reporting to you uh, about what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with you're giving someone a task uh setting up that conversation so you're like i'm expecting you to tell me when I'm not, you know, when you're not comfortable and what you need and what, what your level of confidence is in the thing that you're doing, that's exactly what you're describing here is that, that kind yep. of relationship. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly it, which is, I want that relationship in all directions. So when, when it comes to, um, you know, how I work with people who work for me in quotes or people who I'm supposed to be supervising, um, I have some really, I just have really explicit conversations about that pattern early on. And I say, look, we have, there's some goals, you know, we, we need to get whatever our, you know, whatever our deliverables are, whatever our goals are, whatever it is we're trying to accomplish as a company or a department or whatever, you know, th- that's explicit. It's written down. I always make it super visible. Um, and let's make sure first thing we have broad agreement on, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And then number two is um, we have to do that in a way where we're all respectful of each other and where we're all learning. You know, so for me, that's, that's a big key, which is how, as explicit as you can be about what is it that you want to learn from this experience? And, 
and, and have, an, uh, have a conversation around it where sometimes there's not that much to learn. It's routine. It's not, it, it's boring. And yeah. you both nod and say, yep, taking one for the team, you know, spending two weeks and just knocking this out. And, and then you're both on the same page. And they're like, yep, you got this. Um, this is not something where you need to stretch at all. Thank you. N- knock it out. And we will make, we will try and make sure that the next thing you work on does not look like this. Um, yeah. But I, I found it to be really useful just to be very um, transparent about that and say, and say, this is the agenda. The agenda is getting done what we need to get done, hitting our goals, being excellent at it, and learning along the way. And then yeah. kind of item by item, let's talk about um, you know, where we are on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a rule of thumb, people are kind of happiest when it's 80% or you know, maybe a little bit less of stuff they know how to do. And then, you know, what 20% or so of stuff they don't know what, how to do. Um, yeah. If they, if they have resources to, to learn the, that stuff. Um, so there's some challenge. And, and, in it. Yeah. yeah. So there's some challenge in it. So one, one question I want to ask that, you know, related to that, I mean, you're giving some specific sort of skills uh, in your leadership that you've learned over time and in processing with people. And one thing that we, we ask regularly in this is what separates a junior from a senior leader? And I'm, I'm curious, given your experience in particular, to, to go very specifically in that, what, what really makes, is, is an executive at a company different from you know, any other leader in the company? Or what makes that role different or the, the skills or abilities or tendencies that that person needs to have to succeed at, at the higher levels in the organization? Um, oh, so many thoughts around this. So, you know, there's different parts to it because I do think leadership and authority are completely separate things. Um, they, they're often married, but they certainly don't need to be. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But let, let me answer your direct question, which is what, what makes an executive different? Um, I, I think it is often... Um, a history of, you know, enough experience so that they can juggle information, details, and trade-offs about a pretty large scope of influence. Um, you know, where I think a good executive is making reasonable decisions across a, a very large scope of it, of influence with limited knowledge. And, you know, because everyone has limited knowledge, mm-hmm. no, no matter, you know. Um, and that's what makes it, that's what makes it super difficult. Um, and I, and for me, that's often the difference between an executive and, and kind of other levels within an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually that's, that, you know, there's some scale of that, that changes from, um, you know, someone who's just starting off as a manager and, you know, to someone who's, who's an executive in charge of you know, a, a fairly large group, you know, I want to, I want to jump in on a different thing, which is, which is about leadership, which is, you know, an activity that executives, of course, have to, have to participate in. But I, I believe leadership is really an activity, um, you know, and it can, it can be and should be performed at people at, at levels all across the organization. And it's really about, getting a group of people from where they are to some, you know, some imagined future or imagined other place. And, you know, sometimes it can be a, a, 
it can be technical leadership. Sometimes it can be, um, you know, cultural or spiritual leadership about like, here's this idea that we all hold dear and we want to create an experience that, that makes that idea, um, you know, much more prevalent in how, in our experience. And some of the most, some of the most impactful experiences I've had are, you know, when people who are ICs or, you know, you know, kind of first level managers are passionate about something and have, you know, a lot of the raw skills, but are, but, you know, they make up the rest with passion and caring about what they're doing and have an effect that is large and usually different than someone who has, you know, authority would have been able to produce. And, and I think making that Making that something that happens in your company is one of the ways that you get magic to happen. And to notice Whereas those if... people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's it's super interesting. I mean, we do we do tend to use the term leadership and authority interchangeably, and I completely agree that they are not the same thing. Um, we we find that, you know, good leaders are also, you know, have examined their relationship with authority and you know, come to terms with it, whatever weird thing it is, because it's always something weird. <laughs> You've always got mm-hmm. something, you know, from your childhood or from your, you know, from from your growing years of, that has framed the way you feel about having authority or having people tell you what to do. Um, yeah. That is different from from leadership. And I wanted to lead into: uh, Did you do you feel like you had a different relationship with authority than uh, th- when you were a kid than you do now? Yes, very different. Um, very different because I think I struggled with it a lot more. Um, you know, one of the I, I had a couple experiences actually at Sapient that were were fantastic from a growth standpoint. Um, you know, I was early at Sapient. I was young. I was you know I, I've been told I have high EQ for an engineer, <laughs> so I ended up being in a management roles fairly early. Um, and what it means is in my 20s, I was managing people older than me. Mm-hmm. And the first time I had to have a compensation conversation with someone much older than me, mm-hmm. um, I was really off my game. Yeah, I'm, and I understand. Lucky I'm for me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and lucky for me, I was with a person who um, was willing to mentor me in that experience and had enough respect for me. You know, we worked together kind of every day. You know, we had a great working relationship. You know, I've, I've, I've been at the point where I don't have a problem saying, okay, you know what, this is, this is, you know, the task I need you to do. This is how kind of what I see going on with the team. Do you agree? Um, but that was, that's different than a compensation conversation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, clearly. And, you know, yeah. lucky, luckily for me, I had the experience that this person said, Jules, what's going on? You, you look kind of nervous. <laughs> You're sweating. <laughs> you know, this is like you. What's going on? And I said, dude, I'm, you know, this is the experience I'm having. I'm, you know, we're supposed to have this conversation. And, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. I know you have more experience than me in a bunch of ways. And I'm trying to weigh all of that as, as we do this process. And, um, you know, it was interesting. I think just... Having that experience, putting it on the table, and essentially him saying to me, um, you know, we've worked together for a year now. You got this. Um, you know, me taking a few minutes 
and saying, yeah, you know what I do? Um, you know, this isn't my first rodeo. I just had this story in my head about this particular one. Um, and that, that for me shifted a bunch of things. So wait, this um, person you know, you're worked. talking about, I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I understand this person you're talking about is the person you were supposed to have that conversation with also. Oh yes. Oh, literally okay. in a, Sitting down in a <laughs> conversation, conversation meeting, this person looks over and says, Jules, you look really nervous. What's going on? That's so kind <laughs> of I them. Say, oh, it was so incredibly. Kind. I mean, it was it was in, incredibly kind, but it was also you know both the experience, the environment we had set up, mm-hmm. and the relationship we had, which is you know I, I clearly drew on them as a mentor when I could. You know, I said you know, hey, you, you did this for five years at such and such company. What are what do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, and I've been using them in that way for a long time. So they they didn't feel like there was a lot of pretense they needed to you know kind of keep keep the 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 veneers up and that was actually part of the learning which is um you know a lot of the veneers are just the stories we're telling ourselves and and just the more you can get rid of that stuff the freer you are to act yeah so you know when you tear down your own walls people don't feel like they have to work around them Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the, the big takeaway, which is um, in all of these conversations, you can be transparent, you can bring your whole self and, you know, don't don't worry about don't don't worry so much that you you create an experience around the worry. Just, right. you know, just be with what it is you're trying to do and the reality of what you're trying to do. And, yeah, but there's something you know, important tear, tear down the veneers. in the basis of that, which is which you just alluded to, which is be, you know, be clear about what you want to do. It's super important to have examined your motivations about things when you are having this, you know, being this kind of open. That's the, that's yeah. the path to that, right? Is to know, look, I, you know, I have the best of intentions for this person that I'm having this conversation yep. with and I need them to, un- yep. to trust me in that. Um, it's not always that simple, you know, in the business world, uh, but it yeah. can be that simple uh, when you think, you know, it's, when you try. It's thank you for touching on that, because I think that um, that's actually one of my biggest things, which I realized I didn't articulate. Um, you know, it's not always easy, but I, I strive b- before any hard conversation to understand what I think the win-win is in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm kind of not prepared to have a a win-lose conversation, certainly not with people I'm working with. You know, it's, you know, it's, um, and and this started really back at Sapient where, you know, even, even feedback conversations about performance, you know, it's really clear to me that, um, this is painful and it sucks, but what I am doing is helping this person grow and giving them the best possible chance to perform well and be excellent in this role. And if I'm not giving them that, I'm actually not supporting them well. So even conversations where you're like, you know what, you did X, Y, Z, and it wasn't up to standard, and let's talk about why, let's talk about what happened, and being able to have that in a, a again, a, a kind of unguarded way, mm-hmm. For me, a big a, a big um, part of that is being really clear on my reasons for it. My reasons for it aren't punitive in any way. My reasons for it are, hey, 
we have these goals. We're all trying to be excellent at it. And it didn't happen. And we have to talk about why it didn't happen, what's going on. And, um, you know, what support you might need, what, what, what went right, what went wrong. Um, because if we don't have the conversation, the result is still going to be that the person leaves the company. Um, and it will not be in a way that either of us will look back on positively. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. yeah. You got to set all well, that up in advance. For sure. <laughs> so Anthony, we got to wrap up for time's sake, but before we let you go, give us a, you know, real brief, what, what, what keeps you entertained outside of work hobbies or, or things that entertain you? Um, I, I recently started doing a hobby, which I, I might stick, but um, flying FPV drones, yeah. which I don't know if you've seen anything about this, but essentially you put on a headset that has these little cameras and you see through a camera on the front of your drone, oh. sorry, these little projectors. And um, it's kind of nuts. It's, um, fun. It, it's a, it's, it's analog virtual reality. Uh-huh. You, you are a super acrobatic four propeller flying machine that gets to fly through the world. And you see through that point of view as you're doing it. Yeah. Um, been, been playing around with that for a while and it's, it's fantastic. I suck at it. And there's some people who are fantastic at it online, yeah. but it's, uh, it's fun enough to keep, to keep playing. At. How many times um, have you crashed and destroyed a drone? Oh, so that's actually one of the things that got me into the hobby, which, you know, so I've crashed and destroyed a drone once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to RC planes that I grew up with, which is you fly them, you know, I don't know about you guys. My experience was, save money, do this stuff, get a new RC plane, go out, fly it for maybe 25 minutes, have it crash into the ground, and that's the end of the plane. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so all these drones are made out of carbon fiber composite, and they're incredibly durable. You just drive them into the ground, the wall, and the concrete constantly. Um, So the ratio is kind of like 50 crashes to one replacement, which for me changed the game. That's That's, definitely more appealing. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big, it was a big difference. You know, I went out, saw some some people flying and I I was like, oh, wow, you just missed that, you know, clipped this sign and ran into the side of that building. And, you know, either you walk over and straighten the props or some of these people who are so good, they kind of blip the throttle in this weird way and it flips back out into <laughs> I mean, some, you have to go some over there. normal position and then it can fly. Oh my gosh. Um, <sighs> and um, when I saw that, I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I'll actually spend time flying a thing instead of just spending time crying about my broken thing, which was, which was my previous, previous experience. <laughs> wow. So we're definitely all the way out of time now, but um, just last thing, if anybody wants to talk to you about flying these drones, uh, where can they find you on the internet? I think the best place to find me on the internet is LinkedIn. And I'm just uh, uh, Anthony Jules, just my name at LinkedIn. Okay. All right, cool. I will uh, put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this has been great, Anthony. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That was super great. My pleasure. <laughs>